0: The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership. What books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they, how they structure their time through the day. That's free. So go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders it's also a great way to give back it's free to get involved and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or just google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up Today's guest is Steve Factor. Steve is the CEO of Idea Factory Innovation Incubator. He is the host of the McFuture podcast and former executive at American Express, Citi, and MasterCard. Welcome to the podcast, Steve.
1: Thanks, Jono. Pleasure to be here.
0: I've been looking forward to chatting with you. First of all, tell us, uh, some listeners will be really familiar with what you do. Uh, some people, this may be the first time they've, they've had the chance um, to hear from you. So tell us a bit about what you do.
1: Sure. Uh, so the innovation part of the business is really just um, developing products and services for companies, uh, particularly in financial services, retail, uh, consumer goods, and technology, uh, but uh, specifically more B2B service type technology. And um, the process that we use is something I developed over the years working in corporate called the four C's of innovation, uh, which is context, creativity, capabilities, and culture. And somewhere along the way, I, you know, especially during the pandemic and recently because of the Ukraine crisis, I've been doing a lot more futurism work, which sounds fancy and like it involves a crystal ball or something, uh, but it's really just scenario planning and helping companies figure out what uh, the future might look like, and that way it allows them to invest because otherwise, you know, if if you have no clue and plant no stake in the ground of what that looks like, then how do you make a, an investment decision that's anywhere beyond a year in, into the future? And that's a lot of what I used to do, or at least a, a big part of what we used to do in that first C, which is context. Uh, so now it's just become kind of its own practice. And of course, uh, I'm an author, speaker, podcaster, uh, doing a lot of the, uh, the the typical stuff you'd expect for someone who, uh, <laughs> who writes a lot and has way too many ideas and needs a place to put them.
0: <laughs> yeah i resonate with that as well uh that's why uh, you know people will know it uh who listen to the podcast I always finish by mentioning the two other podcasts i have where it's just me giving um sort of leadership content so uh, similarly um i don't know have you come across patrick lencioni's working genius assessment it's only come out in the past 18 months or so has have you ever come across that yet
1: I'm not sure. It sounds like something I may have seen scrolling through tweets, but not necessarily focused in on. So what is it?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's a new assessment. It's about how we get work done. And um, it was really interesting for me because I I love using assessments, working with teams. Um, But Often they're, you know, they're, they're a bit too deep to really feel like people can grab a handle quickly. Whereas this one is, is really accessible and it breaks, it it breaks down. Basically the idea is we all have a genius or we all have two geniuses in how we work. And there's six of them, two that are our geniuses, two that are our, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact terminology, but they're okay and two that are frustrations like the imagine a coffee cup with a hole in it and trying to fill it up with coffee that level of frustration like that's that's what it's like Mm. to to, and and anyway I mentioned that because that was one of the first times where I ever really I always knew I loved ideas um, but the top if you go sort of the getting work done in a working genius goes from questioning things right at the top high level which is called wonder so like even wondering and saying why is it like that all the way then to invention and then all the way down to tenacity and actually bringing a project to completion and really really hitting the finish line and for me I did I did this assessment and my number 1 and number 2 is wonder and invention and so I I just resonate with what you expressed there because I was like ah okay maybe not everyone is constantly questioning everything and having you know 50 ideas a day maybe that's maybe that's um, uh, kind of like unique to to how I'm wired
1: yeah it's a blessing and a curse because it uh, creates a certain short attention span disorder where you know you (laughs) if you don't complete one thing very quickly, then you grow bored because you have a, a whole line of other things that have come to mind that are more interesting and more novel that you want to you know sink your teeth into and so uh, I, I think it's you know uh, it's a blessing and a curse, and it 's something that oftentimes needs to be paired with other people who are more execution oriented because yes. it's you know like it, though because it's very rare that both the execution and the idea generation reside comfortably in the same person
0: 100 <laughs> percent, i love that it's so true that's definitely my experience uh i struggle with um with execution and i always thought there was something wrong with me because you you know you work with people who are fantastic at execution um and you you just watch them just pump out you know just the same sort of thing and and not you know and just really like wonderfully skilled at just smashing things and getting them all the way to the finish line um and i would be oh man what's wrong with me and then you go to have a brainstorming session where it's like let's come up with something new and they're sitting there going man i have nothing and i'm like uh in my element and uh but i so i kind of knew that years ago but yeah the working genius is the first time i've ever done an assessment that really sort of just highlighted to me in you know these, this like the word invention is literally there as one of my top two geniuses and i went okay maybe i need to take this part of how i'm wired more seriously
1: Well, by calling them geniuses, he's going to sell a lot of books because everyone wants to feel like one uh, or or like they are one. Correct. (laughs) So, you know, it's funny (laughs) because I never had the heart to call my podcast anything too lofty, because I have sort of a, you know, a sense of humor about things, which is very hard to do in business, because I think, and and not just business, any profession, you know, whether it's activism, or, or politics, or whatever, there's a seriousness and a self seriousness that comes along with it. Because people who are pursuing that are oftentimes are the ones who are successful are making sacrifices along the way and they need to justify and validate those sacrifices. And if you find the humor in any of that, that's a a gut punch to someone who maybe spent a weekend making a deal in China instead of with their family or watching their, you know, their kids by the pool.
0: Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, no, I agree. Well, um, I took us down a little tangent there and uh, which is, which is, which is kind of uh, an example of what we're talking about (laughs) because working genius popped into my mind. Now let's turn to you, Steve. I'd love to hear um, some of your story. Let's start with your childhood. Looking back, what were some of the moments from that season of your life that really shaped you into the person, uh, the leader, Uh, the thought leader, the entrepreneur, you know, that you are today?
1: Well, I think the thing, ironically, that most defines me has actually started to matter somewhat on a global scale. So I grew up in Ukraine and we immigrated to the U.S. when I was a little kid. Um, So to me, this is the first time ever uh, that I could imagine Ukraine ever mattering to anybody. And I've never really felt like I was from there because, you know, the, all the Soviet immigrants I knew kind of lumped themselves into a singular category and culturally were very similar because they were forced to conform in the Soviet union. And so you know, uh, being an immigrant and having to learn the language and always feeling like an outcast where, you know, you you didn't fit in, you didn't, you couldn't speak the same way that others did, you didn't have the money for nice clothes. So I think that shaped me in a lot of ways. I think probably the biggest, if I had to pinpoint one or two, uh, the biggest that comes to mind was probably empathy. So you kind of begin to, uh, empathize with, uh, others and uh, see kind of where they're coming from, especially people who might be outcasts or might be a, a little bit different or, or, or peculiar. So I think part of that, uh, experience shaped my sense of humor shaped my, uh, tenacity because I had to work harder uh, than a lot of other kids to to catch up and to uh, to do things that uh, you know maybe they had money to do and I didn't but I never see it as an excuse in fact I, I think it's something that built character in a way that they didn't have access to. So I think that's probably the most d- defining thing. And, you know, and, and there's a level of, of sacrifice and appreciation uh, for what you got rather than all the laundry list of things that you wanted, which mm. were out of reach. Like <laughs> instead of transformers, I would get some crappy Gobot from the, you know, discount store yeah. and uh, the, the thing would not even stand up properly. So, you know, it is what it is, but you learn, you make the best of it.
0: Yeah. And you know what? it's um i mean i've always known anecdotally chatting with people who have um uh, you know who can say sort of growing up there was any any of that like i can't even imagine moving countries and and like you said needing to catch up in school but i've been shocked in the podcast this is uh this comes up again and again and again anyone who had that that like any of the elements you mentioned about your childhood steve anyone who had that they always point back to those experiences and connect them to the way they think and how they lead um and and it prompts a question i guess i'm interested to know like you said you don't see them as an excuse you actually go well actually there that that taught me something i learned something from those experiences that shaped me to to think the way i do and and to have work eth- work ethic you know that you have etc how do you like and uh, you may not have the answer uh, for this but what are your thoughts on how to create that some of those experiences and some of that resilience in young people when there, um you know, say then you're able to, to bring up a, you know, say you're bringing up kids in a, in a neighborhood and in the one house and the one school, do you have any thoughts on how to actually create resilience in young people?
1: Yeah, it's pretty monumental a task, but in essence, I think you have to build a simulator, you know, where you have to simulate all the things uh, and all the um, kind of, uh, you know, dangers that we've lost. In other words, you have to, you know, so there's um, a big, I think there's a documentary about this on, I think it's either Netflix. I'm going to say it's Netflix, but uh, it's it's around the concept of free range kids and how in Japan, they just let kids walk home. You know, they're somewhat supervised, like some monitors from a distance, but they're essentially on their own from like age five or six, and they are allowed to roam free, which is, kind of how kids grew up here for the longest time they don't anymore and so you know we've got helicopter parenting and and i think that everything from that to uh you know teaching them how to you know fix things, teaching them how to, you know, uh, defend themselves, teaching them how to uh, have a job and and discipline answer to somebody else. Like those are all things you have to create artificially because it's very easy to, you know, give them a Venmo account and, you know, whenever they need to buy something, you you send it to them and money becomes invisible. But if they earn it themselves, that becomes a uh, something they value so much more. But it's it's a lot of effort. And I think now with uh, both parents working, it's really hard to build and maintain that simulator. And likewise, you have to do that at work uh, because sometimes the parents didn't do their job. So now you're now you're in uh, parent mode with some of the younger staff.
0: Hundred percent, yeah. It, and it is it's something that uh, you know. Once again, talking about Patrick Lencioni, he he, he makes a really interesting point in uh, in a book called The Ideal Team Player where he basically says of the key traits to be great on a team, which he talks about humility, uh, emotional intelligence, effectively, and, and this idea of hunger or work ethic. He says this hunger or work ethic is the hardest, even more, even more difficult in his opinion than humility to actually grow in. So if someone hasn't had that instilled in them from a young age, which is just one of the things you're sort of talking about there, then um, just from his experience working with all different leaders and, and teams that is the hardest one to cultivate for someone who who hasn't been brought up with it
1: yeah and it, well the other one you mentioned is pretty hard too uh, emotional intelligence mm. I'm not convinced that can be taught any more than I'm convinced that creativity can be taught I think some things can be systematized to an extent but I don't think you can quite teach that that sort of differential creativity where, you know, someone else uh, sees it or looks at it or hears it or whatever your, your medium is and goes, how did you get that? And the other person goes, I have no idea. It's almost like a channeling more so than, uh, than, you know, something that arises from a process. Yeah. So I, I think emotional intelligence also falls into that category. But I the more I think about it, the more I think the shortcut to that and maybe it's not a shortcut but but i think accountability is a path to emotional intelligence so mm. when you can get someone to feel accountable for their mistakes and their actions and truly understand why they were wrong doing whatever they did and and truly you know take accountability for it i think that inward look and that muscle memory will eventually translate and transfer externally to become something like emotional intelligence, maybe not uh, of the sort that comes naturally to some people, but, but uh, approximated in some ways.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I think, uh, I think, I, I really like what you said there, that there's a natural element to it where if you are brought up around Uh, people who think that certain way then there's this wonderful natural emotional intelligence and uh, but definitely I'd say when I first read that book as an example I thought you know what I think for me emotional intelligence is probably of those three humility uh, hunger and, and this idea of emotional intelligence I thought I wonder I reckon that might be the one that I struggle with the most and it is, it's really hard to grow in and it definitely is something that rather than just being able to pick it up naturally at some point, I've certainly found for myself, I have to be very intentional to find tools that are, uh, that give me sort of, um, like, uh, you know, learning about mirroring, learning about listening. And I, I think it's one of the reasons I love coaching because for me, some people coach and it's very natural. They just sit there and they they help someone coach them and and maybe they have a process, but a lot of it comes very naturally. Whereas for me, I've found, uh, just because I identified this and went, I don't know how good of say a listener I naturally am. I had to learn tools, which now in some ways, I feel like once again, like what what you talked about, that's, there is an advantage to that, which is I have had to systematize and really come up with a process. So now I can teach it to other people and um, w- which which i love to do rather than going, well, I don't really know how I get that result because it just comes naturally.
1: Yeah, I, I admire the process and people who have it. And in many ways, they can be more productive than a lot of people who lean heavily on their natural gifts. And, and so for me, I've always been a person who gravitates towards the what and the why. And less to uh, to the how, because the how feels very boring unless it's very targeted. You know, like unless there's a specific thing I need to learn, and then I kind of you know go really deep into the how. But just generally speaking, it's not the first thing I'd go for. First, I need to know why I'm doing it, and if if I can't have a strong why, I I'm not even really going to delve any deeper than that.
0: Yeah, that's that's so true. well, let's jump uh, back into into your story. This is so much fun. I just love bouncing back and forward on all these ideas. I want to ask you, Steve, so for you, when were, so, you know, there might be multiple, some of the first leadership opportunities you had. Do you remember the first time? You might have been really little. You might have been a teenager. It might have been older than that, where you had a project that, um, that you were responsible for, where you had a group of people you were leading in some way, or casting vision, or or talking of ideas, really like championing an idea? What what comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if it was uh, idea-based. The, the first thing that came to mind, and maybe there were others before that that I just don't remember. But, um, you know, obviously in school, there are a bunch of things, but I I don't know if if those stuck with me. I think it's only once people started paying me (laughs) that I, you know, kind of uh, had uh, a very sort of a pragmatic measure of of doing something f- for others or with others that they're counting on me for. So I, I guess I kind of break it down into stages. And I think the first thing that came to mind is when I was, I guess it was from my senior year in high school through college, I was a salesperson at uh, Radio Shack and Tandy Computer Center. So I kept working my way up from some of the smaller stores all the way up to the big one at the shopping mall in Brooklyn. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, I, in terms of dollar per hour, I was the top salesman or among the top two or three. And, so to me, that is a form of leadership where you're displaying personal excellence. Uh, no one, I didn't really manage the store. And I guess maybe I was given certain other responsibilities, but for the most part, you know, a cash register or something, but, uh, but for the most part, it was sales. And so that, uh, I was, uh, it was the first time I felt like really proud. Cause I'm like, Hey, I'm good at this. I'm good at, Uh, listening to people tell me what it is that they need, diagnosing whatever that problem is and solving it with whatever, you know, hopefully we had in stock. Um, And then that kind of evolved to more of a team type of uh, leadership where I was at Anderson doing consulting and there you kind of learn to work as part of a team and there's that team dynamic and working with clients. So I think that that, you know, in terms of presenting yourself to others and re- representing the company and putting a, a work product together from a bunch of other people that a lot of senior people would be looking at. So I think that was formative in that way. And then when I moved to MasterCard, I started managing people and then uh, certainly City and, and American Express. Uh, you know, I, I, I that's a different leap where you're managing up, where you're managing – uh, senior executives, you know, and their expectations and, and kind of learning how to navigate what they want. And also in some ways, creating your own path and your own, um, uh, you know, doing what you want to do, obviously within the context of the organization, but, but if you're good at managing their expectations and demonstrating what you're good at, then, you can carve more of your own path and people start creating jobs for you, which is what happened at Amex uh, for me at some point, you know, so I, I went from managing the uh, chairman's innovation fund to working for the vice chairman of the company who essentially created a role for me because he saw that I was good at doing that other thing. So it. um, you know, so I, I think there, there are different aspects to it. And now certainly as an entrepreneur, it's, it's, it's self-management and managing others and, and, so, uh, and managing them in a way that it's your organization. So, so I think it's, it's different phases um, and each one added something to my repertoire and, and kind of, you know, I don't know if it's a complete puzzle. Maybe there's an, a, a level that's missing here, but certainly I mm. see them as incremental.
0: Yeah, it's, I, I love how you unpacked the different stages and the incremental, uh, differences. One, one thing that I've been chatting a lot with leaders about, and once again, it's it surprised me because, uh, sometimes running my own business, and, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, it's funny being a consultant, um, because I'm working with leaders who have large organizations and, and executive teams all the time. And yet my day to day leadership is now, like you said, it's it's actually entrepreneurial because at the moment, even though I have a vision to really have um, a much larger team down the track, it's it, a lot of it is actually like it's a small business and, and being an entrepreneur. Um, and so as I chat with leaders who are on the ground right now leading large teams, this idea of individual contributors tra- transitioning to managing people, managing teams, this gap, there's this gap that keeps coming up again and again and again. They're saying, look, my, my executive team, they're doing they're doing well the challenge we have is those individual contributors in our organization who are who are like amazing shining stars and then someone sees the potential in them like you said and goes okay come over here and now i want you to manage this group of people and there's this massive gap between being an individual contributor and leading uh, people managing direct reports what you know what what was your experience making that Transition. What did you find most challenging about that? What 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 was different between really just being Steve smashing out um, KPIs in what you were doing versus having people who were reporting to you?
1: I'll be honest with you. That I, I hated that process and that transition because, and and I think most people do, and that's why the cookie cutter path in corporations is a failing one. Uh, there, uh, you know, corporations are built for. Um, how would I put this? They're they're machines. They're built for a running machine, and the people in them, you know, have to fulfill certain functions that are typically matrixed within the organization. So you have sort of vertical responsibilities, and you have sort of horizontal tasks and responsibilities, and and it's very hard. To get someone who is excellent at one thing, uh, you know, in my case it was innovation, coming up with uh, solutions to problems, and 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 force forty percent and eventually sixty percent of what I do to be day to day managerial work, because you, then both me, uh, the organization, and I are suboptimizing because they're getting less of what I'm great at and more of what I'm good at, you know, maybe pretty good but not differentially better than others and diminishing the thing that I am differentially better than, than most people uh, at the organization and because of their inflexibility and because of how these work structures are designed, it is extremely difficult for both sides to optimize without forcing people into what ultimately become the wrong roles. And, and if, people aren't natural managers. If they have the desire to learn great, then they can move into it. But there are certain types and certain roles that uh, that once you force that mold onto them, people will reject it. Just like they reject the limb from, you know, a foreign entity.
0: Yeah. I like that analogy actually uh, because it's, um, This is, it's, it's a great tension because the, if you want to run, if you want to scale a large organization, so much of it is systems. And then if you want to scale, if you want to grow your, the way you invest in people, so much of it can't be cookie cutter. (laughs) And it's like these two things live in tension of each other. And if you, and I think, yeah, organizations make the mistake of going, okay, well, we'll just do our, we'll do our people, uh, everything we do with people, do it like this. And then you end up with someone who would have been astronomically successful. I see this all the time. It's like, if this person, if you just released them to be part of, you know, to, to, to do something new or to be part of this other branch, if you'd seen that they would have not only would they have been successful but they probably would have stayed but they're not successful and they're certainly capped and they leave because yeah particularly you know great people they're going to go I'm not going to I'm not going to be stuck in this place so they they end up you end up losing great people it's it's a it's a really dangerous and um oh I feel like you lose so much potential in in any organization if you treat people with that cookie cutter approach
1: yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it a mistake, in the sense that it is just a byproduct of scale. And so it's not something that they even mm. willingly do because no one is truly middle management is not empowered to change the fundamentals of, of an organization. It's sort of like, do you, do you ever go into a restaurant? And you can tell it's kind of like a, you know, sometimes an immigrant worker or someone who just definitely doesn't feel empowered uh, within that restaurant. Uh, and you ask them for customization of your order. You ask, Oh, can you replace this with that or this with that? And you can see their brains frying because yeah. they're not empowered to make those decisions or certainly don't feel like they are. And so I think that uh, a more, a fancy version of that exists in large organizations, mm. where most will just go with the flow, and if the flow takes them to, you know, a certain type of org chart with or certain types of responsibilities, that's what they're going to hire for, and they're going to look at another resume and go, okay, this person did just these things in their previous job. That's the person I'm going to bring in, and so it, it becomes almost like um, a self fulfilling prophecy uh, of of just perpetuating that same mold and it, very few people uh, see that problem or very few leaders at executive levels can delve deeply into the organization to find those people and and optimize them for you know maximum value to the organization it, it's very rare it it, it happens mm. but it's rare do you
0: think there is a way to scale and like you said it's not necessarily a mistake it's just a byproduct but is there Is there a way, or do you think there is potential for an organization to scale even sort of hyper growth and to still manage to do this where they really are able to find um, the sort of freedom to get people to do what they're best at that you find in in a small business or in an entrepreneurial setting?
1: It's possible. I think the way I've seen it happen is people, while doing the cookie cutter job, find ways either in, you know, they either make time or somehow turn their projects into something that is a, a valuable demonstration of their differential capability. And so that gives them a, a certain reputation and a certain leeway to do more of that. And so I think that you you have to Almost on your own. And it's a Herculean effort. I don't want to belittle how difficult this truly is, but I've seen people do it, but they've done it by almost wedging in their capability into or their differential Capability into whatever existing role they had, and that buys them a license to do more of that. And hopefully, management is smart enough to recognize that and put them into a role or create a role where more they can do more of that and do less of the things that they're just fine at. And there are plenty of other people who can do it.
0: Yeah, well said. I, I like that. Um, I can see where you're coming from there. Uh, so. In terms of your career so far, Steve, interested to know what have been some of the big aha moments? Uh, Are there any that come to mind where you, uh, I love what Tim Ferriss talks about, favorite failures, you know, like where you really uh, made a mistake, but you learned something that's that's really stuck with you or where you, um, someone gave you great advice or there was something that you had a big win as part of a team and, and it's really stuck with you in your mind?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that it's almost ironic in corporations, and it's a bit related to what we've just been talking about, is the most meaningful and impactful things start really small. And so you start with really small problems, because those can be solved within a confined period of time. And they, when you a license to handle bigger and bigger problems. And sometimes that small problem is actually a a much bigger one. But, but that's the other thing where um, I think people make a mistake, you know, of, of oftentimes going to places, especially if your job is to solve or you're wired to solve problems, which I am going somewhere where things are doing great, (laughs) then there's no incentive for anyone to listen to you. There's no incentive for you know you need a, a certain amount of desperation for something new and novel and different to be adopted or for people to be listening. Otherwise, they have no incentive to. Those. It's like, hey, we're doing fine without you. So, um, so I think that finding uh, finding those small But uh, small problems that can be solved within a defined period of time do a surprising amount, uh, you know, and I I do this with companies I work with, um, and I, I just call them small victories, where, you know, you kind of prioritize all the things that they have that are, you know, big opportunities, but very long-term and then other things that are, you know, maybe smaller and more defined uh, and, and can be solved within uh, with more reasonable resourcing. That's the other thing where in a large organization, you're always fighting for resources, whether it's uh, development time in the tech department or people and staffing or dollars, whatever it may be, you're, you're going to be constrained. So the more you understand those constraints and the the quicker you can solve something, the the more you can get to that next thing, that it is more uh, potentially more impactful. Um, mm. Yeah, and and I guess part of that I would say is there are a lot of there's a lot of wasting time on process. I know we've talked about process and the importance of it, but process in and of itself as a discussion is could be a huge time suck, especially if you're trying to put something into market and in that case my suggestion and this has been earned from a lot of <laughs> uh hard fought lessons and mistakes is that you really need to build the process in parallel to doing the thing whatever it that thing is so uh because otherwise you can get mired in you know, like, Oh, this person should do that. Or no, no, that person should do the other thing. And it, and then you're, you're in hell here. You're, you're in PowerPoint hell. So uh, to avoid that, I would say build it and do the process as almost in, in parallel and as a lesson learned, even if it's imperfect, you'll figure out ways to perfect it after the fact.
0: Yeah. I, I love that. Do it in parallel. Um is such it's such great advice uh, let's jump into leadership express I've got a few questions I'd love to ask you and I'm really interested in your answers are you ready
1: yeah let's do it yeah
0: okay, the first one is what's a book that you've gifted to other people or you've recommended it a lot to other people
1: uh, besides mine <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would say that um, uh, the cult of we uh, so I, I'm fascinated, uh, and I've done a few podcast episodes on this, on emerging belief systems and to the deg- and the degree to which they drive our behavior. So while overall religiosity has been decreasing, are we're channeling that into other things that are very religion like like Bitcoin, like yoga, like meditation, like um, you know uh, veganism, like activism, like politics, so there there are things that are essentially serving uh, a similar purpose, and they are uh, but essentially are are b- belief systems of, of their own, and so cult of we, which is about we work, and it 's really the story of uh, the cult of personality of the CEO Adam Newman and i am fascinated by it because i think that cult of personality aspect is really not only powerful but it's it exists in so many manifestations and by the time i was done with the book i was like you know what he deserves his money. He deserves the billions he, he effectively stole because you'd have to be insane to believe some of the nonsense. I mean, he basically positioned the real estate repackager as a tech company and got tech valuations from really smart investors. So it's not like he bilked a bunch of, you know, poor saps who didn't have a pot to piss in. He bilked <laughs> professional investors. And by the time I was done, I was like, you know what? Take your money. You did it. You deserved it. Go, go run and be free Enjoy and build your, your island mansions.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's, (laughs) uh, it's hilarious. Um, it's, I, I only recently watched the documentary on WeWork and, and I similarly found it, um, yeah, just fascinating to see the 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 journey and yeah particularly the the ability to communicate some of the things that, that he did so I, I agree with where you're coming from <laughs> um so uh next question I, I love that uh, oh well, actually sorry just tell us about your book because I do want people to know I, I always think it's a valid answer to include your own book because anyone who's written a book it's it's usually because you're incredibly passionate about something it's a big process to go through so of course that's going to be the main book you're going to be giving away so tell us about your book. I,
1: I, i'll be honest I, I i don't make much money from it anymore because it's it's now how many years old it's like 10 years old so i'm okay if people uh, download it for free off my website <laughs> but uh, it's called the Connovation. but what's what's funny is a lot of the stuff that's in there uh it, it's it's um uh, it, it was really prescient in a lot of ways. And on uh, my website, I think it's on Idea Factory, uh, I've been tracking my predictions from that book and how they're performing and I've been grading them. So I probably have a bad, I don't know, it, 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 they're not all from the book. Some of them are from Forbes articles I've written or other things I've written. And uh, I think I have like 54, 55 predictions in there and I track progress, uh, you know, some are, uh, some are doing, you know, some came true, others are, you know, progressing, others are dead, you know, so I, I've been as honest as I can be in tracking them, but I think I'm a little bit behind in, in updating it, but uh, generally speaking, it's, um, it, it's really interesting to look back. I think there's a lot of really valuable stuff in there and it's, uh, it, it's really about uh, the marriage of uh, macroeconomics and innovation and where, Our macroeconomic path is leading us, and where the innovation opportunities will be. And so, I uh, successfully identified quite a few of the ones like remote healthcare, which no one was talking about in, you know, 20, I wrote it, I guess, early 2011 or maybe, yeah, I think early 2011. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And, and certainly when the pandemic hit, you know, some of those predictions were, you know, were especially uh, prescient. And so I, I didn't feel like I needed to update it. I think just looking at the trend, people were like, oh, I get it. You know, it, it made sense.
0: Absolutely. Uh, last question for you, Steve, this has been so much fun. What is, um, if you could only give one piece of leadership advice to a young leader, what would you say?
1: Out of all the wisdom (laughs) that I've accumulated over the years, I would say the thing that is that sticks out most is taking a hard look at the people at the top of your company, of your profession, and asking yourself, do they look like the future that you envision for yourself? And if they don't, run, (laughs) because you need to find people who do. And even if that means coming in at a lower level or even interning somewhere else uh, that does represent whatever that vision is, even if it's not precisely what you think, but it's something maybe you can envision for yourself, then know thyself. And, and, uh, you know, I've had that moment a couple of times in corporate where, you know, I was sitting in a meeting with the CEO and CFO, and they were both falling asleep, and it was 7am. And I'm like, these guys couldn't get out of this meeting. What the hell does that spell for me? I'm already in this meeting, uh, you know, several levels down. And and, you know, I don't want to be here. But if they don't have the power to to get out of this, then what hope is there for me? So I, you know, so I've had a few of those sort of eye opening moments. And I think, you know, sort of like a sour milk, you can't put it back in the fridge and go, maybe this will be better tomorrow.
0: Yeah, that's so good. And I I just think that is such great advice for young leaders. Look at the top of the tree and see what they're like. And if that's not who you want to be or where you see yourself going, then run. Um, Such great advice. Uh, So for people who have just loved your advice and, and hearing some of your story today, Steve, where can people find you online?
1: Well, uh, for business inquiries, they could go to ideafactory.com and factories with a K instead of a C. And uh, they, for my personal like writing and podcast, they could go to stevefactor.com and factors with a K. So, uh, so yeah. And you know, the McFuture podcast is on there and you can find it on iTunes and all the, uh, all the wonderful places. So if you want to hear more of, uh, this, uh, <laughs> wonderment, uh, there's more to be had.
0: <laughs> awesome. Love it. Well, thanks to our listeners for tuning in such a great episode where we just bounce back and forth on a whole bunch of different ideas. And, uh, I, I really, there's some really thought provoking sort of, um, Things that came out today, I can see why Steve does what he what he does. Um, but uh, for our listeners, don't forget, I also have the John O'White Leadership Podcast and the Leadership Question of the Day podcast, as I referenced earlier in the episode. So feel free to check those out as well to invest in your leadership. But I want to finish today by saying a massive thank you to you Steve for being so generous with your time uh and for sharing some great stories and wisdom but more than anything else just for being so much fun to spend time with and and uh, and, and chat about all things leadership and, and and ideas it's been it's been a real joy
1: likewise my pleasure enjoyed it
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. And, uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books, we're reading, it's got the best content and it gives you exclusive limited early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, how to deal with difficult people, even if you hate conflict.